Welcome to Just a GP. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I am joined by my co-host Charlotte Hespi. Unfortunately, Beck couldn't make us today. She, like many of us in clinical practice, had an unforeseen emergency that has prevented her being with us today. This afternoon, we are talking to Dr. Michael Clements, who is the RACGP Rural Faculty Chair and has just come into this position as of last year. So we wanted to get Michael on to talk all about what he's doing in that space and a little bit of his vision for the faculty and what's kind of happening at the moment. So welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Ashley and Charlotte. The uh, been a long time listener. It's great to be a first time talker. So you you would know that we then always start with a highlight of the week. Yes, well, it's one of those unusual highlights. I thought it was a good idea at the time that I have my first COVID jab in front of the news cameras and, you know, trying to propose the message and tell the community that it's safe to have. I was called by the local media saying, you know, can we come and do a story? I said, hey, why don't you come and film me? And the jab in my arm. Uh, And then two cameras turned up with two different uh, news shows. And as the nurse was coming for me, I thought, oh, I hope I don't have a vasovagal here. That's going to make much more of a story. I was hoping I didn't have any tears or anything like that, but pleasingly, it all went well with the vaccine, but I was a bit of a wuss for the next 24 hours with chills and aches and pains. And uh, unfortunately, because it was on TV, everybody knew uh, that I'd had the vaccine and I couldn't lie about my side effects. So that was my highlight. um, I'm looking forward to the next jab. And you, Charlotte? My highlight is also sort of a, a low light in that the highlight for me this week has been going to the funeral of one of my colleagues who, similar age to me, a bit older, who died much too young from cancer. And as is often the way when you go to a funeral, I think you learn all of these amazing things about somebody that you wish you'd known when they were alive. And It was such a joy and a privilege to be at that funeral and to hear her story, which was truly, truly remarkable. She came from Romania. She escaped communism aged 20, running into a United States embassy when she was doing work for the Romanian government as a translator for Japanese. She would have, as I said, been in her early 20s. She then got given a free pass in inverted commas to Australia Uh, managed to persuade University of New South Wales to let her in as a medical student. She actually started medical studies in Romania and then went on to actually train in cardiothoracic surgery and became one of the first women to do that. Won a scholarship to do more work in Paris, then another scholarship to do more work in the United States, was actually came back to Australia with paediatric cardiothoracic surgery skills. And guess what? She couldn't get a job. She couldn't get a job because she was a woman and she'd been born overseas, so she had an accent. And what was actually even more amazing was that I knew that, but I didn't know that the reason she jumped out of cardiothoracic surgery wasn't because she absolutely just couldn't get a job. And she ended up becoming an epidemiologist and doing some amazing work in HIV and hepatitis C. So, you know, she continued to have a really big impact in her medical career, but you know, I just, I think I had my, the breath taken out of my chest as I heard about, you know, that, that, you know, I think about the impact that we have in the medical profession about 
men's clubs, I'm going to call it. Somebody said, why is it a men's club? Why not a boys club? I said, no, it's a men's club because I don't think boys would be that mean. So I think it is a men's club. And whether it's a men's club or just a fraternity of something club, that idea that some people don't belong. And so even if you come with all the most amazing skills that you might still shut the door on them. And we need that to just never be part of our culture. And I sort of feel really passionate after having been there about continuing to blow the trumpet about leadership, about the role of men and women equally in uh, particularly our career of medicine, which is very much, a, um, I think, a leading career in terms of how we model our behaviours. Anyway, I better get off my platform today is about Michael and rural platforms. Well, it's always nice when you learn something new about somebody's life and journey that you didn't know before and it allows you to remember them in such a fond way, particularly in that situation. I hope we've come a bit more of a long way since that happened to her in that time. I fear not, Ash. I fear not. My highlight was on Wednesday when the sun came out because... I mean, it had been raining quite a lot up here, as many of you will know. For context, we had flooding up in our area and it had been raining for quite a long time and raining hard. So a lot of staying indoors again and dogs looking at you like, can we go now? (laughs) Like, I would if if a rain jacket was all I needed. So on Wednesday morning... It was like woke up, no rain, sun and the birds were just so happy and I just think where do the birds go when it rains? Imagine being wet for that period of time and then all of a sudden you're dry. That would be the coolest thing. So, you know, it was really nice to kind of step out and and you could tell that the it wasn't just the humans that were happy that it was had stopped raining. So let's jump in now. Michael, what has it been like the first couple of months of being the Rural Faculty Chair? Yeah, well, I think it was uh, certainly a a bit of a whirlwind event. Sadly, due to the passing of Harry, uh, there needed to be a very quick reshuffle and it meant that I took on the role of the Rural Faculty Chair a bit sooner than planned and sooner than I was hoping for. But I'd been putting in uh, quite a number of years in the different faculty councils with Queensland Council and then the Rural Faculty and uh, had been building up to the role through applying for the Deputy Chair and doing that for some time, being mentored and supported and, and well uh, prepared by Eamon, uh, so that when I did take the role, I, I did have a, a pretty good idea of what was going on in the rural uh, faculty space, and then uh, got the privilege of joining my first board meeting with some very inspiring colleagues that have been working very hard in uh, GP advocacy, and, and it really just opened up a whole new world of experience and understanding of, of what really goes on in such a big organisation to actually support our members and try and move forward with that GP voice. What would be your vision for the rural faculty going forward? Yeah, often when you get to sit in the boss's seat for the first time, your often initial reaction is that you want to change everything and and do everything better. And and you think that, you know, all these problems that still exist, if they just had the right person saying the right thing in the right meeting, surely we can resolve it. Pleasingly, I've been taking on leadership roles in various hats 
across various agencies for long enough to know that first job was to sit and listen. And so it was uh, listen to the faculty, explore what was going on in their minds and their priorities, uh, listen at the board meeting in, in terms of what was happening there. And then uh, my first challenge was really answering the question, how do I know what my rural members want? So how do I know what they're thinking? How do I know that I'm doing my job in advocating for them? And I'm a rural GP. I, I do remote clinics and I live in a regional town. Townsville is really a, a mini city. But, you know, I've got my own lived experience of what being a rural GP means, but that's only my experience. So I think the biggest challenge that I uh, set for myself was uh, talking to my faculty managers uh, and to the council just to try and get a grasp on being able to reflect on what was going on in that membership community. So, Michael, as a non-rural GP, I'm interested in terms of how connected do you think the rural faculty is and how easy is it to connect you up? And I ask that from a point of one of the most inspiring things for me was getting involved in the collaboratives and the Improvement Foundation back about 10 years ago now, where I thought I was sort of alone. You know, you might think urban doctors are connected, but they're not necessarily. But I didn't know how wonderful the community of rural practices were and who truly inspired me in terms of some of the ideas they were doing and some of the work that they were doing. And that really kept me going. And that sort of sense of being socially connected with your colleagues and sharing experience and sharing stuff was incredibly powerful for me as a GP. So I'm sort of interested, is there a good way of how you connect and what sort of systems do you have for the GPs out there? Yes, sadly, we probably don't have the the best systems in place. And general practice is one of those specialties where you can be quite isolated, no matter whether you're in the middle of Sydney or the middle of the Northern Territory, Uh, because once you close that consult door, it's your own little world. I don't think that there's many differences at all between the urban and the rural GPs, really. I know there's a very strong identity that rural GPs like to hold for the work that they do in these rural communities. And that identity is born through their connection to community, their sense of value uh, to the community and their sense of self-worth, but also that forced scope of practice expansion that goes on. If you're the only doctor or you're only one of a small group of doctors in the middle of a small town, and if you want to order an ultrasound um, because you're worried about this wide upper quadrant pain, well, when you know that it's a six-hour return drive to order that ultrasound, it, it forces you to think a little bit more and think to yourself, okay, well, actually, when I'm back on the East Coast, I'll go and do an ultrasound course and I'll, I'll buy an ultrasound for the practice and just increase my scope of practice in that way. So, the, the rural GPs, you know, are proud uh, and they do good work. And we're also aware that they tend to seek engagement and collaboration through conferences. So, um, and just like Open GPs, you know, it's, it's not separate, but most of the states hold annual uh, rural doctor workshops and conferences. For example, tomorrow is the Big West Australian Rural Doctors Workshop and Conference, which I'll be speaking at, but sadly can't go to. I wasn't willing to risk another border shutdown, so I'll be Zooming in for that one. But we tend to see the rural GPs connecting those manners um, through the social events and the learning events. And most of those rural conferences also have family family events too, so a concurrent family package where um, you know people are bringing in their families and you know take them to the zoo and all of those entertainments. It's actually through those conferences that we tend to find the most engagement and the most stories and that's where we can do the most listening. 
The other thing that happens is we're, we're quite full of agencies and organisations that feel that they represent rural GPs. And I'm sure that's true across GPs everywhere. So, you know, we've got some really good agencies, you know, Rural Doctors Association that punch well above their weight in terms of uh, connections in Canberra and the, and the number of members they have. Each state has got a, a Rural Doctors Association representative. Uh, ACRAM have got a good, strong footprint, you know, across the country in terms of their advocacy and their training in, in rural generalist skills. And they're very strong in North Queensland. And we've got a, a, the health workforce agencies that like to represent and advocate for rural doctors. So there's lots of people wanting to speak up on behalf of others. As the rural chair, obviously, I, I wanted to get down to a bit more of a granular level and actually use my faculty members and people on that uh, faculty to actually ask their own questions around them and, you know, go to all those workshops and feedback to us. Uh, we know that surveys are, tend to be pretty poor ways of finding out what our members want, that we get low return rates. I was very pleased when RACGP moved into the, the new age of Facebook and we were allowed to have a faculty Facebook page. It's not Facebook is not for everybody at all. But for those that do use Facebook, I think the faculty pages are a great way of connecting. And I certainly actively seek opinions and share news on the Facebook page. And, and, and as a rural chair, it's a very easy way for me to try and tap into those members. Sadly, it's only the members that use Facebook, and I'd, I'd love to find other ways. Uh, but I can put out a post about something that's relevant to my rural members and, and get feedback, you know, within minutes sometimes and get a good read of the land. So I guess the short answer to your question is, how do we uh, get that connection? How do we as a faculty understand? It's by attending these conferences. It's attending these workshops. It's by us working with RDAA and the state-based um, Rural Doctors Associations. It's by us working with ACRAM. And, and we certainly have been connecting with them and collaborating, uh, particularly in that rural generalist space. It's about using whatever platforms we can. We still use surveys for those that like to use them. Uh, we certainly encourage our members to use Facebook and those faculty pages as an easy way to engage. Uh, and if anybody's got any other ideas on how how to connect, uh, please send them to me. And pleasingly, I actually get direct emails as well and direct Facebook messages and, and, and emails through the faculty, which I respond to. So happy to listen in any way that we can. I actually have noticed in comparison, I think Rural Faculty Facebook is probably one of the more active Facebook pages that I'm on in terms of the RACGP faculty groups. And I agree with you, Michael, it, it's not constant, but it is enough and it, it generally helps in terms of connecting people and you know asking if people are okay like recently in the last week and also reaching out if people are needing some support so I think I agree with you there in terms of the Facebook group there's a, a kind of few themes that have been popping up around what you see as important in leadership and correct me if I'm wrong the themes appear to be listening not just saying that you're listening but actually listening and listening in lots of different ways. And then the second one is collaboration. Recognising it's not just one organisation that can help to move towards supporting regional, rural and remote communities and regional, rural and remote doctors. And so it's really important to be collaborative in that process. Would you say there's anything else? So... 
there's several stages, I think, and you've, you've articulated that well. First, it's listening and understanding uh, the problem and the variations, but it's also listening to the potential solutions and, and what the, the true issues are. In that collaboration space, it's recognising that we're but one player and that there are other people with good ideas uh, and they may come to the same problem from a different frame. And, you know, to be blunt, you know, some of the agencies come to the framework of rural workforce shortages thinking that rural journalism is the only answer but that's not RACDP's viewpoint. And so, you know, it's about how do we work with people that might have a different solution or a different tool to solve the same problem and doing that in a respectful and positive manner. And then it's about being clear and well-defined in what we stand for and what we want. So, you know, we go to our rural council and say, what is our position on this? You know, and, and making sure that we've listened as much as we can and then establish, you know, what is our value proposition? What do we think we can contribute to this particular solution or, or this particular problem? And coming up with the position, well, RACGP believes rural doctors uh, or rural workforce needs a mix of those that can work in and outside of, of, of a hospital environment, which we call rural journalism, uh, but also our rural workforce must be uh, supported and maintained by rural GPs who do just community medicine. And then the third you know, component to that that the rural faculty has been very clear on is that every FRA CGP is trained for every postcode. You know, yes, there are uh, there is an identity and a strong sense of pride in being a rural GP, and and certainly there's a left wing and a right wing in there that you know might say that you know rural GPs are, are special, but you know everybody's special. Um, but our rural faculty has been very clear that every GP, whether they be in Sydney or in Broken Hill, is trained to the same standard with the FRA CGP, and they welcome you know, you know to contribute and support you know the workforce needs, and that they're all valued, and that they all need support and encouragement and an education plan and a program. They need to uh, reflect community need. They need to adapt their skills to the community need that they're providing in. And they're all part of the solution. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? It's the trying to make sure that we give you a good platform for knowing how special it is that you can be a rural GP and what a privilege that is without it then undermining what maybe other GPs are doing too. And I always think that's a challenge. I mean, at this point, I'm just going to take you back a little bit about all of the rural doctor organisations because from where I stand, I I find that not difficult but confusing because there's so many different organisations and they're all saying something slightly different which you know which is a bit of that typical thing about us as GPs where I will often laughingly and affectionately call us feral cats because we are very you know we we do like to do our own thing and we all are very strong and capable and amazing survivors yet not necessarily very good at cooperating together, which I think is our real weakness. And it's definitely where the government gets us. And I sort of feel like, although rural has a lot more emphasis from the government and they see this as the area that needs investment, at the same time, I feel like the voice is not as strong because it's there's so many different players there. You know, so how do you, how do you harness that without seeming to be condescending either about the role of each of those organisations who I'm sure does have a particularly important role or they wouldn't exist. Yes, when we solve this dilemma, I can retire. Well, actually, no, hopefully I'll retire before then uh, because I certainly, and, and I'm sure this is true in many other advocacy spaces, I don't want to claim any entitlement to us having the worst problem to solve. But, 
rural advocacy and rural, you know, doctor advocacy and planning uh, is unnecessarily competitive. There's a sense somewhat that there's only a limited bucket of money and therefore we need to compete with whose solution is better. And so uh, I've been in meetings where we've got, you know, five or six very intelligent, very good people around. We all, you know, when, when you get down to it, we all want the same thing. We, we want community needs met through well-trained, well-supported doctors that are appropriately remunerated, delivering the service that that community needs in a sustainable way. We all want that. But then different agencies have got different toolkits or different frames that they approach that. And I think we need to respect that we've got those different frames. But we also, while respecting that we've got different solutions, we also need to try and avoid competing against each other. So it's it difficult when the federal government says, I've got $100 million to solve rural, and then we get five different agencies saying that, well, I'm the only one with the solution, we should get the biggest cut. And I think whenever that happens or whenever we play that game, we're playing into the government's hands. I mean, what should really happen is that we all say, listen, we've all got good ideas. Each of them have got evidence and components and benefits. Uh, what we need is the government to invest more money. And so rather than playing a zero-sum game argument, it'd be nice if we could just talk about you know, how efficient and effective each of our solutions are. I'm with you on investment, Michael. I really, really fear this current philosophy of government that they can solve all of the problems by just moving money around. But worse than that, it's not even moving money around from where it should come out of, from where I sit. It's no rocket science ability to see that the money needs to come out from the hospitals because that, you know, it's a bottomless pit. And, you know, you just have to go and look in, you know, the Scandinavian countries to see that they were brave and de-invested in their hospitals and have really benefited from that. And yet we continue to see hospitals as being the sexiest part of the health system and it's an untouchable. And as a result, we're never, I don't think we're ever going to fix the primary care system because the only way it can be fixed is by in, investing in it really and properly investing in it and all this sort of tweaking around the edges and playing games and, you know, this whole nuancing of, oh, I've given you this little pot of money that's going to do this and everybody gets all excited about it. But really it's, it's not actually solving anything and that's rural and urban alike and my biggest fear is that we will be separated continue what, what they seem to be wanting to do is drive this wedge between us as GPs about you know the rural and urban differences and say well you know urban are fine because they're going to survive because you know puff that's no problem and we'll continue to really de-invest because they've already de-invested in urban and pour it into rural without actually understanding that if you don't fix the whole system, it is going to completely collapse down that same sinkhole because where is everybody going to come from if there isn't an even spread? Anyway, I, again, I could get on that platform, but I think, you know, it is one of those exciting times at the moment, I think, as rural faculty chair. The only solution is more money and the money can, yes, you, as you say, go into any number of things, but it needs to go into a proper, a proper program and not this sort of nonsense that happens. 
Yes, is the short answer. Yes, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think we, we need to be clear as a college that we support investment in rural health, but not at the expense of urban general practice. I think we're very clear on that. Not all agencies are. And so whenever there's a, a, another agency suggesting that we should remove or divert funding from uh, the rest of general practice in the country and move it into rural, you know, the rural faculty does not support that at all. We do need more investment. And, and you know what? It, that may actually come from the patients. It may be that patients in the rural communities need to learn to pay higher gap fees. And, and to be frank, many do. You know, the town of Mackay, for example, no longer has any bulk billing general practices. They're all private fee paying. And, and that's happening more and more around the place. So the money's going to come from somewhere or the doctors are going to leave. Um, the township of Mission Beach, there was a bulk billing practice there. Rather than start charging patient fees, they actually just closed. And so now the township of Mission Beach does not have a doctor at all, uh, which is just crazy when you think about the number of people that live there and the tourists. So things are going to happen. You know, if we don't make the right decisions in investment, um, general practices will close, GPs will walk away, and towns will be without a doctor. Alternatives to that are uh, that patients start paying out of their own pocket to pay for that service. Maybe councils will start paying out of pocket to, to sponsor or, or support a failing service or PHNs or, or, or local councils and governments. Or, as in the case in uh, very much so in Queensland, we've seen the Queensland government prop up failing general practices. So uh, the, we have seen hospital and health services stand in and actually replace uh, failing general practice services with state health salaried um, GPs providing the role. And, you know, maybe, you know, if we can't beat and join them, if we can't tell the federal government stop funding the state hospitals and invest in general practice, maybe we should just be nudging the state hospitals to fund uh, general practice like already happens across Queensland. So I think in terms of moving forward, if we accept that it is going to be a competitive space for limited funding from the federal government, and I think it is. Sadly, I think the federal government's given us no indication at all that it's going to come rescue us with any kind of appropriate funding for either general practice or rural general practice. I think we haven't seen anything reassuring at all that the federal government is going to invest in general practice anywhere near the level needed to stem the flow that we're seeing both urban and rural then we need to either be really competitive with our representative agencies and, and I don't think we need to head in that space or we start working together better you know let's get together with RDAA and, and we certainly have made efforts in that area and ACRAM and the other state-based agencies and actually find out what the common ground is what do we agree on? And, and generally speaking, we actually agree on 80, 90% of, of what the solution is. And, and let's sort of focus on that rather than competing about the extra bits. So I think as a rural chair, that's my real challenge and uh, happy to be measured against that it would be how well do we work with the other agencies? How well do we establish the common ground and advance the common ground while still respecting that there are going to be some key differences? I would say as a rural member and as someone who's always interested in that discourse and discussion, there's definitely a lot of people working in rural areas who would like that to happen as well. You know, there's this kind of idea of can't we all just work together? You know, I'm a part I'm part of this organisation and I'm a part of that organisation and I would like them to, you know, recognise that, that that's the case and, and collaboration is helpful. So from a member perspective, that's kind of what I see as well. I just wanted to divert the conversation a little bit because I feel like we could go down this rabbit hole of, you know, fixing rural workforce and adequate funding for general practice and we could probably spend many, many hours. I'm sure all of us here today have spent many, many hours and many, many days and many, many meetings talking about. So I just want to bring the discussion a little bit back to 
some of the innovative ways that the rural faculty is supporting its members and also rural general practice. And I opened the RACGP rural faculty email today and I was really excited to see a new program called Practice to Practice. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what that's like and what it is and and what's involved and what people can do if they want to be involved. Well, thank you very much for opening the email. That's the first step. And can I encourage every both rural member and state-based member, please do open those emails. We do actually invest a bit of our time and, and effort into trying to get a concise message out to you. So we're very, very proud to be releasing, it's called a pilot of Practice to Practice. So just over a year ago, RACGP held a summit, a rural health summit in Alice Springs, uh, where we got everybody from the Department of Health, the different training organisations, RTOs, um, ACRAM, uh, RDAA, all, all of these agencies, we got into a room and we spent a couple of days actually trying to find out again, common ground, what are some of the solutions that we can work towards. And and out of that, we got a list of uh, 20 action items where essentially the rural faculty were given 20 areas to look at. And one of these was uh, what's now called practice to practice. What we're doing is, is we're shining a light on collaborative arrangements between urban or regional GPs and practices with remote and rural GPs and practices. We know that this is already happening. So we know that, you know, organisations like the RFDS pioneered this concept of having, you know, GPs in one area supporting rural towns in another and people hopping on pedal bikes and generating enough electricity to hop on the radio and calling in for help. Uh, We know that there are many general practices in urban areas like Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane where GPs will go out and support rural towns and rural communities on a regular basis. Northern Territory, many of their services and their DMO model are based on GPs who come out to the Northern Territory and do a week at a time or a few weeks at a time and then go back to home in Melbourne, for example. My own practice, I'm in Townsville. Uh, we've got, uh, I've got a few practices here. We actually fly out to remote communities on a monthly basis and provide face-to-face GP support. And then when we come back home, uh, we do telehealth support. So these models already exist. And so what we decided to do using Practice to Practice was use our, our very strong membership base, ROCGP, you know, about 10,000 of our members in the rural areas are interested in rural medicine. And uh, we've got a lot more than that, um, over almost triple that in, in the urban areas. What we wanted to do was actually connect those two groups and say, hey, here's a town, here's an interesting town, Claremont, here's an interesting town, you know, Gundawindi or, or Wangaratta. They need some help. They need some GP time. How about you go out from Melbourne, go out from Sydney, go out from Brisbane, maybe once a month, once every couple of months for a few days or a week, be a GP in that community. And then when you go back home, you can actually still provide some telehealth support. You know, you will be living in the city that you need to for your family reasons, for your carer reasons, for your spouse and employment reasons, but you'll be providing wonderful support for these remote communities. Another example is many of those who do watch Facebook would be aware um, Sarah McClay is a doctor in Claremont and she's facing a very significant GP shortage in her small rural town and she put a call out for help. I spoke to a a GP in Brisbane who's just had a new uh, baby and a new family and so can't travel out rurally. Uh, but certainly is keen to help. So that uh, GP in Brisbane is uh, providing telehealth support to Sarah up in Claremont and actually dialing in and providing, you know, a wonderful, I guess, peer support, a wonderful, um, you know, support in terms of dealing with patients over the phone referring onwards, giving e-scripts, ordering pathology, following up tests from her home in in Brisbane City. And that's a wonderful way of connecting these two groups of people and supporting each other. 
What's been a key enabler to practice to practice is the federal government support of telehealth, because what that means is we can now have a face-to-face appointment followed up by telehealth once the doctor goes back to their hometown. And I think I think we're going to see this grow. I, I know the federal government's making noises about whether or not it's going to continue to support telehealth. We're certainly advocating strongly that it should be. But we think that if we if this pilot works, if we generate lots of interest, we're going to have rural and remote towns with GP practices developing a bond and a partnership with some of these urban doctors who are coming out in that regular basis and or telehealth support. So we're very excited. We're going to have up to 100 at the start of the pilot and we're filling up if you go to our practice to practice website. So you just Google RACGP practice to practice and log in. You'll actually see we've already got a heap of general practices across the country that are saying, hey, we need some help. Uh, you can look up that practice. You could look to see where it is, where the town is. You'll read a bit about the town, a bit about the practice. You can email and talk to the GPs out there. And you might find that you can plan that during the, the school holidays, you might go and spend a week out there with your family, connect with that general practice, connect with that community, do a few days of work. And then when you go back home, um, you might offer yourself up for a few hours a week or a few hours a fortnight for ongoing telehealth support. And so we're really excited. We think that this is this is all about connection and community and collaboration. And uh, we're very excited to see where it's going to go. It's kind of a cool idea, I think, you know, having kind of a regular practice where those GPs are kind of get to know each other and, you know, you can almost do swapsies. Like you come and live in my house for the week and I'll go and live in your house and we'll give you a break. You may not have an agreement where you go and work in the same practice. If someone needs annual leave, then... You know, I can see that there's a a nice little way where you can say, look, I'll come and work in your practice if you just want to go and stay in my house and have a week off. I I imagine that that would help in terms of retention for a lot of rural doctors to be able to have that knowledge that's a GP that they know, trust, that their patients know and trust and, you know, they have that sort of mutual agreement is going to be coming and supporting the town. And, you know, there's sort of all ways that it could grow in terms of, supporting you know new new fellows to kind of connect with other communities and yeah I think it's a really cool idea and and often something that seems like it would actually be a lot cheaper than having a locum and a lot nicer in terms of collaboration and connection and support for each other. Yeah, thank you. Those are really important points that we're hoping to draw out here. You know, there's already enough locum work. You know, you any city doctor can call up a locum agency and get given a hundred different jobs, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, an ongoing relationship, a commitment to a practice and a town, and peer support for each other. When I own practice was affected by the Townsville floods, I had colleagues from around the country call me up and say, "Listen, Michael, you know, heard that you've been affected. How can I help? Do you want me to come up and help a little bit?" And and that, you know, relief in my own mind and that connection really did help, was part of my healing process, helped carry me through. And and so I think I, I can't remember whether I put it on the Facebook post or not, but, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if this was already up and running for all those New South Wales GPs affected by the floods? Because if this was, you know, it's probably already happening. I'm sure it is already happening for some of those rural GPs in New South Wales. But a mature practice-to-practice system would mean any GP that's been affected by those floods would already have some urban and regional doctors calling them up saying, you know, hey, John, you know, I saw your town on the on the news. What do you need? And that's all we need. You know, when I was affected by the floods, just that sort of, what do you need from me? How can I help? You know, it's just this weight lifted off your shoulders. You might not need any help at all, but it, just knowing that there's people out there that you can call on. So I think this practice to practice, you know, it's very aspirational and, you know, I'm expecting big things, but I, I think 
I already do it. And that's why I know it's going to work. I, I guess I'm just hoping to spread that love and that connection. We've also had very good um, support from the workforce agencies and councils and the PHNs that are even looking at funding travel. So if you're a doctor that's identified a rural practice in New South Wales, it's likely that we're going to be able to have a package of money to pay for your first trip out, just like a locum, and just do that first thing. But it's under this ongoing relationship. We don't want the mercenary locum approach. This is I'm going to go and visit this town. I'm going to connect with the community and the GPs. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to identify my own learning needs and I'm going to go away and upskill in whatever I need to upskill in. It doesn't mean you need to do emergency department work. You know, this practice to practice is not about doing rural hospital locums. You don't need to put in a chest strain. You don't need to be able to intubate or deliver a baby. This is about GP supporting GPs. Can I, um, just as a little aside, I was been involved in a similar but completely different project with a partnership with a practice in Borroloola in the Northern Territory, which actually came about as a result of an RACGP conference in Darwin, where a local GP to me was struck by how hard it was for a lot of the areas in the Northern Territory to attract GPs to assist. And so they actually established this practice to practice partnership with Borrelola Health Centre, which then for them was amazing because it solved their workforce issue. And basically the GPs around this particular practice just down the road from me would go up for a month at a time. And you know, like, so I was one of the GPs who helped with that. And the Northern Territory government actually came to the to the front in terms of paying for the airfares and assisting and there was accommodation and transport when you went. So it was an amazing experience and one of my colleagues still goes frequently as part of that sort of long-term partnership. What was different about that was that it did mean that A, that practice knew that they were going to get a GP for every month of the year. It provided an amazing experience for city GPs, but it also allowed the city GPs to bring their skills into that rural setting, which, you know, quite honestly, are different because often you view things in a different way in terms of the preventive care and how you do it and set up. And so it was a win-win on so many fronts. So I just think this practice to practice, I'm 100% for it and hopefully at some point when I have some time back from some of the roles I'm doing I can help participate in something again down the track. I really like it love I'd go as far to say love it so I'm excited to see how it goes and I really 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 hope that it actually works really well and I have faith you know I I know the rural faculty and I know who's involved in the rural faculty and I'm sure that it will be something that really grows and becomes something that we can all be really excited and proud about in terms of innovation in in support for rural communities and rural doctors. So super excited. I'm really glad that we had the opportunity for you to come on the podcast today, Michael, and give us a brief overview about what it's like, you know, leading in such a space that can be difficult, challenging, but also exciting and innovative. And I really wish you all the best for your journey as the Rural Faculty Chair and what happens over that period of time that you're in that role. I will let you take over with a tip of the week. 
Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking. My tip of the week, I'm going to focus on practice of practice. If you're a, a GP in a regional or urban area, you like the idea of working from home, maybe you're caring for kids or loved ones. If you can spare a couple of hours in the day um, just to sit on your computer and support a rural community, just Google practice to practice, R-A-C-G-P, register yourself, uh, look at all the practices there that are looking for help, and maybe giving a little bit of your time there will be able to make a massive difference to some of these rural remote communities. So that's my tip to give you some professional satisfaction and use the most of your time. Thank you. Charlotte? I'll go with, I've been doing some work with New South Wales Health, helping them develop a platform that will be GP user-friendly for getting patient-reported outcome measures data done. And so they've actually finally opened up the web link that will be able to be eventually used by GPs. It's called HOPE, H-O-P-E. So if you actually Google that with the New South Wales Health website, you can go and have a look at that. And I think it's a really exciting initiative because I really believe strongly that we can only become better doctors if we are patient-centred and the patients are the ones who can tell us more about what's going on for them and a lot of these surveys are actually ridiculously useful and if we can actually make it a little bit more automated and get done in a more targeted way and us using it as a reference in partnership with the state then that's going to be fantastic and the good news is is that in a couple of months time they'll actually be launching a link where we can actually do it from our own software so medical director and best practice so go and have a look at hope and on that vein thinking about patient-centered medicine my tip of the week is looking at the blue knot clinical guidelines so the blue knot foundation used to be uh, ASCA, which was Adult Survivors of Childhood Abuse and is now the Blue Knot Foundation. They've recently put together a huge amount of clinical guidelines on uh, managing and treatment of complex trauma, trauma-informed practice in mental health care and other settings. And they've also got a clinical guidelines on trauma-informed health service delivery, which I read as a document and it was really, really helpful and something that I think is should be on the required reading for all DPs. So that's my tip of the week. It was lovely to see you all. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Thank you.